Hello, I'm Alec Avtikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. Wow, it's been a long time. This semester has been one of the most challenging of my college career, but I did tell you all that I would take a long break in order to focus on my studies. I am amazed that I am still gaining listenership, and what's more, an international listenership. Overall, there are people from 32 different countries that have listened to my podcast. This is absolutely insane that people genuinely want to listen to my podcast. However, be sure to give me feedback so that I can make this podcast series better in general. Be sure to write an honest review about my podcast and to follow me on my Instagram to get more Frederick the Great content. You can also email me if you have any questions about the podcast or to point out anything I could do better, or even just to say hey. If you remember all the way back in August with my episode about the political testament of Frederick the Great's father, religion was extremely important to Frederick Wilhelm the king in Prussia, specifically a branch of Protestantism known as Calvinism. Religion is not necessarily important to Frederick the Great's life specifically. Most likely he was a deist, but Frederick's rejection of religion was extremely important to his personality. He instead replaced faith in religion with faith in high culture. Pietism, at least according to the main source that I used regarding this topic, helped shape the culture of obedience to the state that Prussia became famous for in the 18th century throughout Frederick the Great's reign. Due to Frederick Wilhelm's promotion of pietism within his lands, the Prussian society became more willing to cooperate with the regime and a type of patriotism would emerge during the certain wars that would take place during Frederick the Great's reign. This discussion of pietism is vital to understand why we have the stereotypical view of Prussians, nowadays Germans, how they have to follow orders and are extremely efficient. However, before we get into this, I must tell you that I am not a religious historian, and I am in no way qualified to summarize the German Protestant movement in the 18th century. With that disclaimer out of the way, I will now do my best to describe what pietism is. Now, we have to go way back into the 16th century France, when John Calvin was born in 1509. Why so far back, though? Well, the last time I really talked about Protestant Reformation was the first episode, and I thought we needed a refresher. After all, being 16 episodes in, I have hopefully improved a lot more since my original episode. So, John Calvin was a crucial theologian during the Protestant Reformation. Here's a brief biography of good old John Calvin. Welcome to the mini life and times of John Calvin. He was born in France in 1509. By age 14, he went to Paris to study at the College Marche. He then studied at College Montaigu in 1523 for four years. The 1520s were an unstable time period in what we now know as Germany specifically in the southern region of the Holy Roman Empire. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses in 1517, and with a growing economic stagnation, the peasants rose up en masse in the largest uprising in Europe 
until the French Revolution. Sadly, I don't have any time to talk about it in depth, so go look up the German Peasants' War. But back to Calvin. In 1528, Calvin studied law in Orléans throughout the next few years. He would move back to study more. Heaven's sake, Johnny, you think you've read enough. Anyway, he would preach under various names because his humanist education and his associations with the reform movement made him unpopular with the Catholic Church. You could essentially be killed if you spoke out against the Catholic Church at the time. Truly, it was a violent time. He then begins writing a book that he would eventually publish in 1536 called Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is the book where he would eventually develop the ideas of the Reformed faith, or more commonly known as Calvinism. Calvinism, also known as Reformed Protestantism, has the belief that salvation is predestined from birth. This means that it does not matter what you do in life to reach salvation, but the heavens have predicted the direction of your salvation. Calvinists also preach that humans have no agency over their life. Essentially, according to Calvinists, free will is an illusion and God has will over everything. Again, this is a huge oversimplification of the theology of Calvinism. Anyway, Calvin was then expelled from Geneva in 1538 and spent the next three years in Strasbourg, now a part of France. He continued to preach views that were deemed heretical by the Catholic Church. He was then called back to Geneva, Switzerland in 1541 and became the head teacher of that city. He would also instrument multiple reforms in Geneva for both the church and the state, including 60 ordinances. According to the book called Great Christian Jurists in French History by John Witte, he left fragments of new laws on property, inheritance, and commerce, many of which integrated the, into the lengthy 1568 Civil Edict of Geneva. He would eventually die in Geneva in May of 1564. So, that was his life. He made major contributions to the split of Protestants between Lutherans and Calvinists. In the Peace of Augsburg, as was discussed in the very first episode, excluded Calvinists. This has major ramifications on European, and specifically Prussian, history. Now, back to Prussia, or more accurately, the electorate of Brandenburg. The Reformation was not as radical in Brandenburg as it was in other parts of the Holy Roman Empire. According to Christopher Clark's book, The Iron Kingdom, Brandenburg had gone through one of the most gradual, moderate, and peaceful reformations in Europe. However, if we skip ahead to Christmas Day of 1613, Elector John Sigismund converted to the Reformed faith rather than Lutheranism. The communion waiver was gone. The crucifix in the church was also gone and all idolatrous symbols were gone on that Christmas Day liturgy. This happened when the majority of the, you know, actual people of Brandenburg were Lutherans, who were used to the traditional adornments. It is argued that John Sigismund turned to Calvinism due to two main reasons. The first is there were influential Calvinists in his father's court, and the second is Elector John Sigismund's trip to Heidelberg, Heidelberg was the capital of the Palatinate, which was one of the states that began the Thirty Years' War. 
The Palatinate was also a Calvinist powerhouse in the Holy Roman Empire. If you look at modern-day Heidelberg, it is one of the most colorful cities in all of Germany, partially because it was not bombed by the Allies in World War II. But anyway, why does John Sigismund's conversion to Calvinism matter? Because the subjects of Brandenburg were actually Lutheran, this created a major divide between the people of Brandenburg and the ruling Hohenzollerns. What was once a land in relative peace religiously was now a land divided by religion on the eve of the largest conflict with religious roots in the heart of Europe. This conflict was the Thirty Years' War. So, these religious tensions, the war, and the weak rule of Elector Georg Wilhelm spelled disaster for Brandenburg, as I pointed out in my second episode. Go check it out. Then, of course, rose the great elector, Frederick Wilhelm. One major goal throughout his reign was to decrease the power of the nobles, or Junkers. Another layer of that conflict was religion. The nobility of the people were, and the people were majority Lutheran, and the great elector was a Calvinist. This religious difference was a major contributor to the resistance Frederick Wilhelm faced from the nobles. That is why the original conversion of John Sigismund matters. It led to Brandenburg to a culmination point of religious tension until something else came along. The religious tension was so bad that the capital, Berlin, had a riot in 1615, and one of the Calvinist preachers had to escape over his neighbor's roof in his uh, underwear. <laughs> in the 1670s and the 1680s, the Lutheran Church in the Holy Roman Empire was in crisis. They faced the Ottoman Turks to the south and Catholic France, led by Louis XIV, to the west. Out of this crisis rose a man who was crucial to the eventual making of the Prussian state. His name was Philip Jakob Spena. Here are the highlights of his life. Spena was born in Alsace in what is today France, and then the Holy Roman Empire. He spent his he went to the University of Strasbourg where he received a Lutheran education. He then moved to Geneva, Switzerland, which was Calvinist, and areas of France that were also Calvinist. He eventually became senior clergy in Frankfurt am Main in 1666. In 1675, he wrote Pia Desideria. Again, my Latin is not my strong suit. And this writing is going to be crucial to the, to the development of pietism. You see, Spener believed that there was a type of gap between how people were genuinely practicing Lutheranism, but the morality of common people simply wasn't getting any better. So Spener asked the age-old question, what is to be done? Here's what Christopher Clark's book, The Iron Kingdom, has to say about Spener's diagnosis of society. The religious life of the Lutheran parish had become desiccated and stale. In a pithy and accessible German, Spener proposed various remedies. Christians might try revitalizing the spiritual life of their communities by founding groups of pious discussion. Spener called these colleges of piety. So, this is where you get the word pietism. Critics of Spener were saying things like, Oh, you think you're so high and mighty with your theological discussions, you pietist. It's honestly similar to how the Puritans got their name. 
According to the Richard Gotham's book, Pietism and the Making of the 18th Century Prussia, this is no coincidence. The most probable source of inspiration for Spener's confidence in the future was, rather, the same that gave his work much of its innovative character, namely English Puritanism. Therefore, I can say, coincidence? I think not! So, what do pietists believe? Well, I think Christopher Clarke's book, The Iron Kingdom, puts it best. Pietism was controversial because it represented a co critical counterculture within German Lutheranism. It was one of that broad palette of 17th century reli or European religious movements that challenged the authority of ecclesiastical establishments by calling for a more intense, committed, and practical reform of Christian observance that was usual within the form uh, within the formal Christian church structures. So essentially, it was a way that teachers, uh, teenagers, and college students could rebel in the late 1600s. In the University of Leipzig, there was even a time a man by the name of August Hermann Franke encouraged the creation of colleges of piety under student supervision. This caused a major crisis and even led to students burning their Lutheran textbooks and lecture notes. As a college student myself, I can honestly sympathize with these people. But because of this, Saxon officials cracked down on the pietists and forbade them from any clerical office. But what does this have to do with Prussia? I'll tell you. When Spener had worn out his welcome in Saxony, Frederick III of Brandenburg offered him a job in Berlin. Frederick also allowed August Franke to have a land uh, to allow August Franke to have a post in Prussia. Like I said earlier, Frederick III of Brandenburg and eventually the king in Prussia is one of the most sympathetic of the Hohenzollern clan. But why would Prussia take in these radicals when everyone else in middle Germany seems to despise them? Well, remember how the people of Brandenburg are mainly Lutheran and the ruling house are Calvinists? Frederick saw pietism as a good middle ground because Spener was not a fan of the squabbling between Lutherans and Calvinists. Now, to pass the torch from Spener to Franke. See, Franke in 1692 became the professor at the University of Halle. He received a ton of criticism for his teachings, but Frederick gave Franke the post in Halle in order to more integrate the Duchy of Magdeburg into the lands of the Hohenzollerns. Before the Hohenzollern takeover in 1680, Calvinists did not have any civil rights, including the right to own property. As pietism was seen as the middle ground, Elector Frederick planned to use the University of Halle as a way to culturally integrate Magdeburg. And now for something I never thought I'd get into in this podcast. Child labor! Woo? While Franke established some major reforms such as a poor school, an orphanage, the centralization of charity, the prohibition of beggary, and a hospital that opened up in 1702, 
He also used the orphanage as a way for poor kids to gain useful skills to be added into the workforce and possibly make their way out of poverty. One of the eventual students of the school at Halle was Hans Hermann von Katte. Go to the episode Katte and Mouths, the powder keg explodes if you do not know that name. So, is this good or bad? Of course, my answer is... Who's to say? I mean, increased education is of course great, but uh, child labor, that's a hard one to support nowadays. So, what was the societal impact of the pietists on Prussian history? I will give you the answer that Richard Gothard's book gave. The crucial change in this area was the sustained effort made to transform inherited semi-traditionalistic administrative structures into more impersonal, intrusive bureaucracies dedicated to imposing state control over day-to-day activities over their subjects at the expense of customary social patterns. So, let me clear up what that means. Essentially, pietism helped expand the powers of bureaucracy. This was King Frederick Wilhelm's pet pet project to increase the power of Prussia. Again, Richard Gothrop's book, when talking about Frederick Frederick Wilhelm's bureaucratic reform, says, The king worked to create the type of disciplined behavior he desired to by relentlessly exhorting his bureaucrats in the basic values of state pietism. Frederick Wilhelm also called for the opening of 2,000 schools and compulsory education, a very modern reform. The schools were all based on the Halle model. Another possible impact of pietism was the comparatively low rates of desertion due to pietist field chaplains. Essentially, pietism constructed an avenue for a cultural revolution to happen in Prussia where discipline and self-sacrifice were valued above all else. It is debated whether King Frederick Wilhelm was an actual pietist or whether he just used them to further his political goals. That I cannot say for sure. But my hypothesis that is that he may have been a pietist. I read his political testament and it is full of religious dogma from pietist beliefs. There was another effect as well. Religious tolerance between confessions was also a result of pietism. Prussia encouraged French Protestants to travel from France to Prussia in order to escape persecution. Another motivation was to get better tax base, but it's fine. Prussia became the Protestant counterweight to Catholic Austria in the Holy Roman Empire. There was one time 20,000 Lutherans from Salzburg were expelled to live in the depopulated East Prussia. Pietists raised money to assist their Protestant compatriots, even though they were Lutherans. King Frederick Wilhelm used this opportunity to take in the Salzburgers. According to the book The Iron Kingdom, Emperor Charles VI was hoping to secure the support of the Reichstag for the pragmatic sanction that would confirm the succession of his daughter, Marie Theresa, to the Habsburg throne after his death. He needed the vote of the elector in Brandenburg. The scene was set for a mutual beneficial transaction. 
In return for Frederick Wilhelm's support for the pragmatic sanction, the emperor agreed to pressure the Archbishop of Salzburg into allowing a mass transfer of his Protestant subjects to Eastern Ducal Prussia. Don't you just love it when the pieces of the puzzle of history comes together? This would eventually set the stage for the events of 1714 and the rise of Frederick the Great. But before we talk about Frederick's succession, we must talk about two things in the next two episodes. Thank you all for waiting this long for me to come back. I appreciate all the support, and as the Romans would say, I wish you all a happy Saturnalia.